0: My guest today is Rod Kessler. Rod was born in Brooklyn, went to Harvard, University of Massachusetts and got his MFA at the University of Arizona. He now lives in Salem and he is happily married to Miley Black. He is an author, but we're not going to talk about his writing today. We're going to talk about Malcolm Miller, poet. Rod is the executor and champion of this poet. It wasn't until the end of his 31 years of teaching writing at Salem State that he crossed paths
1: with Malcolm. Rod, talk to us. Welcome. Thank you, Agatha. Let me begin by reading a short poem of Malcolm Miller's. Perfect. Uh, Most people cannot. Most people cannot admit they have heard a dark language come out of the earth and wind to save them. They turn on the television.
0: Don't they? (laughs) Ah, Malcolm, I've read some of his poetry and he's a funny guy. I have a few questions for you and then you can go back to his poetry whenever you want to, okay? Now, how did you first encounter Malcolm and his poetry?
1: Malcolm Miller was based in Salem for most of his life, although he spent significant time in Montreal. And the neighborhood of Salem that his life was lived out in was pretty much that around Salem State College. Um, He lived on Summit uh, Avenue as a kid, and then uh, he died in Pioneer Terrace, Pioneer Village Housing. Um, He was sometimes at the campus of Salem State where I taught. I recently heard my colleague J.D. Scrimger remark that he can recall Malcolm Miller sleeping at the tables in the library near J.D.'s office. So it occurs to me that during my 31 years at Salem State, I probably crossed paths with this fellow. I have no recollection of whether I ever did. But I would find in my English department mailbox every once in a while, maybe a couple of times a year, these little self-published books of poetry with a note, handwritten note inside saying, if you like these, please send $5. And there was an address at this pioneer uh, terrace, public housing. And I pretty much ignored these books. Um, I didn't believe in self-publishing. Um, however, I always did send the $5, thinking, well, if you're going to have to be a beggar through your poetry, there could be worse ways to do it. After, who knows, a dozen years, one of these came in and actually started to look through it. And I was amazed at what a good poet he was. And of course, I could kick myself for having ignored it for so many years. But once I discovered that you know, he was good, despite being self-published, which I imagined was a kind of vanity thing for someone who couldn't get published legitimately. In any case, I knew where he lived. So I wrote him a letter and I asked him if he would consider coming to Salem State and give a reading. He turned me down. I asked him if he'd come and speak to my poetry class. He turned me down. I asked him if he'd meet me for coffee and he turned me down. He said he was too old and too decrepit to do any of that anymore. I did, though, persuade him to let me show some of his poetry to the literary magazine staff at Salem State. And sure enough, they enjoyed his poems a lot. And they published, I think, 11 of them in the fall 2013 issue of Soundings East and made him the feature poet. When the issue was printed, I grabbed 10 copies and drove over to this public housing unit, rang the buzzer. You can imagine the stack of magazines in my hand. And I waited. And I had to wait a long time. And luckily for me, I didn't give up because eventually someone opened the door. It was this old man, tall, bald, bent over. He opened the door, let me in and said, why don't you go up to the second floor? I'll meet you there. And he sat down on the stairs to catch his breath. So that was pretty amazing. I did go upstairs to an apartment that was almost entirely unfurnished. He had one chair, which he took. And I grabbed something from the kitchen to sit on. Um, but that began our acquaintance. Um, now, it occurs to me that he knew me in a way that I didn't realize. In that if he had come to Salem State and gone to some of our poetry readings, he might very well have heard me introduce other writers, but he seemed to have a very positive outlook towards me in a way that was unusual, that he generally disliked English professors, he generally disliked literary critics and literary people, because he himself was a maverick and an eccentric. Um, however, we will see he made an exception in my case. Um, he showed me a couple of things that first time I talked to him, uh, One was an envelope in his kitchen drawer stuffed with $100 bills. And here was a man living like a pauper. He didn't have a bed. He slept in a sleeping bag. He didn't have a dresser. He kept what little clothes he had in plastic grocery store bags that he hung from the knobs of his doorknobs, his closet. And, um, And yet... He had all this money, and I think that we will see when we understand what kind of poet he was, that he purposely chose to live as as ascetic a life as he could, as a life just down to the bare bones so that he could stay in touch with the the true songs of the universe, that he could hear the, the sound of, I don't know what you'd call it, in his sense he would say the song of the universe, and others couldn't hear because their lives were so cluttered with the bourgeois accessories of consumerism and ordinary life. In that poem I read, you know, he says, they can't stand to hear the voice of the universe. They turn on their televisions instead. He Good also,
0: heavens, sorry. I'm just huh. amazed. I'm amazed by what you're telling me. This is so exciting.
1: He also showed me a lot of his work. He gave me a copy of his, his first couple of books. These were published legitimately, quote-unquote, in in montreal where he'd gone to school one was a huge book called the emperor of massachusetts it was probably you know almost two feet by two feet maybe a little smaller than that lavishly illustrated and was very expensive in 1970 it cost 30 dollars um he was appalled he did not want to be a, a coffee table poet And so he turned his back on quote-unquote legitimate publishing and went on to publish 59 other books of his own. Some of these were 72 pages, some were a little shorter, 50-something, but he often had several poems on a page. Anyway, I had a collection of these because he had been putting them in my English department mailbox, but when I saw him, he gave me a bunch more in addition to some of these books, and it was as if he understood that I was someone interested enough in his writing to help it live. Then, when he died, and I knew he died because he didn't answer the door to Meals on Wheels for a couple of days, his body lying on the floor surrounded by empty bottles of Tylenol, which suggested he was in considerable pain, he had listed me as his emergency contact. And the Housing Bureau, what, Bureau of Housing, called me in and said, You've got to clear this guy's stuff out because we need to make room for the next tenant. So I managed to collect the rest of his papers, unpublished novels, plays, and um, became, I I guess you could say, the world's largest repository of Malcolm Miller material, with the possible exception of the special collections at McGill Library. Um, A word about that. So here's this guy who would put his books in the mailbox of the creative writing guy at Salem State saying if you like these pay five dollars and he was sending his work to the McGill special collections room he had Malcolm had gone to McGill and he would send them to the Phillips library in Salem and to the Salem public library Um, I think he always had in mind the idea of a kind of immortality He didn't want to be rich. He didn't want to have money. He didn't want to be a bourgeois success. But I think he wanted to be remembered. And I think he saw in me the guy who might end up doing what I did. And what did I do exactly? Well, I read all 3,500 plus of his poems. And the ones that were good, I actually typed out on my computer keyboard to make a digital file of these. And we're talking about 800 pages of poetry. And again, sometimes more than one on a page. So it wasn't all of his poetry, but it was a considerable amount. And um, having these, it was very easy for me to pass out packets of 30 to 50 poems to the various writers on the North Shore who were willing to help and ask them, you know, which of these do you think are the best? And, you know, we winnowed this down. And from the winnowing pile, we got his first book published, what I'm always waiting for, published by Grayson Press, and um, and then most recently a chapbook called No, from the Derby Wharf Lightbox Press here in Salem. But um, so I became very familiar with his writing, and you know where we stand right now is we have you know one book out, one chapbook out, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, you could easily get three or four more books. Um, if we could find someone interested in publishing them, and maybe this would be a good time to hear some more. Oh,
0: because you They're...
1: are the guy, you are the guy, Rod. And yes, let's hear some of this poetry. Okay. Well, the first one I'm going to read is called "A Clean, Well-Lighted Place in Winter," and of course you can see a nod to Hemingway in the title. And, and Malcolm was, was very well read and well educated. He went to St. John's Prep in Salem, then he went to McGill University. So he was not a complete homegrown um, primitivist poet at all. A clean, well lighted place in winter. It's three in the morning, the fatal lapsed hour. I am the sole customer here in this Dunkin' Donut on the coast of Massachusetts. The coffee is all right, the donut, not bad, the music being offered, only fair. And behind the counter, the young woman who quit high school out of boredom is yawning. A mute kind of weary-eyed goddess, but a goddess nonetheless in this God-blessedly open place. Or don't you know, don't you know yet about closed-up towns in cold, dark times? And Malcolm Miller was known for being up at all hours and frequenting the late night places. He has a a raft of poems about Dunkin' Donuts here in Salem. This one is called The Day. The day spreads before me like an ocean I may gaze upon as waves tumble forward like children somersaulting in a circus of their own exuberance. I have nothing important to do, nothing worth getting disturbed or inspired by. May this keep on forever, despite the stern, helpful lectures of competent people. Um, He did revel in the freedom of being attuned to the world, even at the cost of holding down a job, this was a trait of his that sometimes drove his relatives a little crazy because it was not above him to, um, or below him, I should say, to drop by at dinner time for a free meal but, and then condemn them for being so bourgeois to be lawyers and whatnot. Um, but that was one of his, his values. Um,
0: I like that uh, some resulting in a circus of their own exuberance. Beautiful, yes. Oh, that feels good, doesn't it? (laughs) It does.
1: And um, here's one that also shows his impatience with the hypocrisy of ordinary people and ordinary lives and maybe ordinary culture. It's called, I am waiting. I am waiting. One morning, as they began to give the sports results over the airwaves, Yankees 4, Tigers 2, etc., Suddenly, by some quirk or other, they began to give the real results amid swift protests and denials. Despair, 12. Joy, 2. Propaganda, 6. Truth, 1. Piggishness, 15. Piety, 1. Suicides, 3. Resurrections, 0. He's a funny guy, isn't he? he one of his, his moods is funny. You know, there was a time in the 1970s when Salem had an alternative newspaper called the Gazette. It's not the same Gazette that we have today. It came out once a week, had political news and local news. But the people who distributed it remembered that people always looked forward to seeing the Malcolm Miller poem. He would publish one poem every week in that magazine, in that newspaper.
0: And this was in the 1970s. That's right. Okay. So, here another? Yes, absolutely.
1: Growing up. Oh, yes. Everyone gets born with two hands. You start off pretty much like others. It isn't easy to stand and run, the stars, too, are far off. You realize what a bird is. You follow it until it disappears, as you yourself will disappear. How much tedium is involved with shoelaces? You get the idea about grown-ups. What is expected is neither falsity nor truth. You come to know why when you hear Chinese or Arabic, you're puzzled for a while and then forget it. You forget your greatest moments too, but at funerals you succeed at solemnity. In the rain, you carry an umbrella. If a god visits you, you keep it to yourself. That line about the umbrella, I should remark that, that comes up in a, a bunch of his other poems, and I think for him that was a symbol of being bourgeois, that you couldn't stand to put yourself out in the rain and be in that close contact with the, the world and with nature.
0: Ah, and his, that's his whole thing with the universe, too, yep. just being right in with it.
1: Yeah. yeah, you you get a sense of that in this poem A Letter to an Old Girlfriend I, I might back this up by saying if you know Salem, Salem had a hotel called the Lafayette which in its earlier days was even more of a fleabag hotel than it is now, but there were times when he lived there and uh, when I passed the Lafayette Hotel I think about poems like this, it's called Letter to an Old Girlfriend I have a thousand dollars in the bank and an almost-worthy hotel room paid for a week. I am sitting here listening to Bach on a little radio, smoking a cigar and drinking a good European lager. The police or mafia are not after me, though there was a chance they could have been. Outside is a small green park. Sun is in the trees, and birds, and you... You said I'd be a failure.
0: (laughs) Oh, dear. Now, you said, I mean, he was very persistent in sending you things for years. And then you were very persistent in trying to get him to do something. So I want to know, what made you start reading his poetry? What what was it that... (laughs) How did it? How did that happen? What were your impressions of that?
1: Well, as I said, you know, I ignored these little booklets for so many years. And when I read them, I was struck by the, the humor, the wisdom, the directness. Now I have to say, you know, I'm not a poet myself primarily. You know, I've published some poetry, but I, my my genre was was short fiction, and I have a failed novel, and I wrote a lot of nonfiction too. But you know, I always loved poetry. And, um, but I think that, you know, in some respects, Malcolm Miller might be considered, you know, almost a, a prose writer's poet in that his poetry is not uh, lyrical and obscure in any way. It's not as though you have to sort of understand and translate what his symbolism might, quote unquote, mean. But they're fairly direct, and I think that appealed to me. But there's, there's wisdom there and wisecracks. Um and I should also you know, mention that we're doing him a slight disservice in, in focusing on one theme of his about his anti-bourgeois um, insistence on being in touch with uh, the truer themes of the universe. He also loved women. He has poems that luxuriate in the godly beauty of women. That's one of his <clears throat> themes, too. And um, he wrote about writers as well, and he has poems about Robert Lowell and and um even baudelaire and um jack kerouac and robert frost you know it's you know and when you start to go through this 3500 poems of his you realize you could have a book entirely made up of books about salem places or books about the police or you know all yeah. of that yeah um, anyway so i did see brilliance in him mm-hmm. and um i did want to do more with him than he was willing to do while he was alive and he was not particularly interested in my getting him published here and there and i really had to persist but i finally did get his permission to let me try to get his work into print again and i had him write it down <laughs> had him write it yeah. down and um you know so that i mean i don't think i mean he has he has some family and most of them really resented him and resented his his dislike of them, but he has one niece in New York who, who loved him and you know supports the whole project right now. but I always have this negative fantasy that they're going to say, "Why are you doing this?" you know you, you're not his legal executor, but a there's no money to be made on the Malcolm Miller project, and b I, I don't think they, they're interested yeah. um, the family you mean except for the, the yeah. niece who's yes. who's um, a great champion of Malcolm, and and she remembers him, too. Um, Now, I was retiring just when this happened. I mean, what a perfect, uh, what do you call that, the perfect storm in a positive sense. It was a project that, you know, helped me enter into my own retirement. And, um, you know, if you're going to be a writer today, you have to be a self-promoter. And for some people, it's a very difficult thing. They don't want to be on the soapbox shouting themselves and sending their Postcards out to everyone, and you know, but it's so much easier to do that for another writer. You know, my advice yes, to is. writers is find a writer friend and do it for one another. You know, it's better for your soul to not have to push yourself that way. But for him, so it's been interesting, and you know, to think about the world of publishing and to get, you know, how that really works, um, has been inspiring. And I should also mention my trips to Montreal to visit his. Box. It's a large box in the McGill collection, and to find his notebooks and um, his correspondence, um, you know. I suppose I'm probably the world's expert on Malcolm Miller at this point. Although there are tremendous gaps, I don't <laughs> want to claim that I know everything about him. But um, just to you know, to give one small story, in the McGill collection, there's a letter to the director of the special collections, a guy named Dr. Veer at the time. Saying um, now, if you should run into Leonard Cohen, would you please remind him that you know every year he sends me a hundred dollars at this j- Jewish holiday—I forget which one—and he hasn't done it this year. And um, the guy from the library wrote back, and the copy of that was there. He said, you think I run into Leonard Cohen, do you? Um, but it was just a funny little exchange that um, you, you know I took notice to. And also, he had a pretty car, a pretty considerable correspondence with Gloucester poet Vincent Ferrini. Who is was a character in his own right in his day in, in, in Lynn first and then Gloucester. So these old, eccentric, iconoclastic poets were acquainted.
0: Well, let's get back to his poetry and let's look at some poems in the chat book that's just come out called No Exclamation Point. And if you could choose any that you like, um, I'd be happy to listen and I think everybody would be happy to
1: listen. So what are you
0: going to start with?
1: How about the philosophy department? Oh, yes. The philosophy, uh, the philosophy department. The philosophy department of Tulsa, Oklahoma University believes sincerely life does have meaning. All 16 members of the department back this. Now, I mentioned that he lived in public housing in Salem, And um, he has a couple of poems that, I think, take up of the life there. Imagine being in in senior elderly housing. Uh, This one is called The Man in Apartment 11. Ah, The man in apartment 11 never goes out. I did not wish to seem nosy, but I got around to asking. His gaze seemed to wheel on me. What's out there? He demanded a rasp in his voice what the hell is out there he glared terribly challenging what can i say meanwhile day after day he sits at the window gazing out and then uh, here's one called a guy in the apartment a guy in the apartment has been taken out wrapped on sheets by the ambulance four times in the last year only to come back grinning gamely His children are exhausted by his grip on life.
0: Oh dear. Okay. So we're going to have to end it soon. So I'm wondering if you would like to have a few more poems and then can you end with, I love this one, my meeting with Orson Welles. (laughs) Very well. But if there's another favorite you want to read before that, that'd be great too.
1: Very good. Um, I'll read the title poem. Okay. No. I walked through a store and heard a toothbrush on the shelf saying, I wonder whose mouth I'll end up in. I rushed terrified into the street. There, I thought, you must face this. I returned to the store, moving along rows of painkillers, passing a container of aspirins, I heard the aspirin saying, when I have a headache, nothing helps.
0: He's so brilliant, isn't he? I just love how he just says it all in so few words. And this, my favorite.
1: And uh, my meeting with Orson Welles, actually, this is one of the poems that we published in Soundings East way back in the fall of 2013, which was at the start of my acquaintance with him. And... um, I hope everybody listening remembers that Orson Welles was a famous uh, personage in the world of Hollywood. He was the uh, director of Citizen Kane. He was an actor in many films, and he was responsible for that radio broadcast about the Martian invasion that created such chaos in his day. My Meeting with Orson Welles Once in Rome, I was in the street when the American actor and personality Orson Welles walked by. It was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Orson Welles, I cried. Malcolm Miller, he said, shaking my hand. I was stunned that Orson had read my poetry books. Over drinks, he went on about some of my poems. I especially liked wildflowers. I tried to steer the talk to his movies. He pooh-poohed that at once. Movies, schmovies, he said, laughing at the mere thought. Suddenly, he was going on and on, quoting whole stanzas of my poems from memory. In truth, I began to get a little bored.
0: (laughs) Oh, Rod, thank you so much for those. I'm going to have to have you back because you've got about 2,500 more (laughs) to read to us. So thank you so much for being here. And do you have some final words to end our day together with?
1: First of all, thank you, Agatha, for having me and for helping to keep Malcolm Miller's poetry alive in the world. Um, I should also mention that keeping Malcolm Miller's work alive in the world is what the Derby Wharf Lightbox Press in Salem is doing. We have a publisher there named Javi Awan, who's also a poet himself, who has now put out four of these little chapbooks all related to Salem and the North Shore in one way. So... um, If you're interested in these, you can always Google Derby Wharf Lightbox and it will pop right up. Great. Thank you so much, Rod. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. Stop by again.